is Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And uh, you might recall, if you were here last month, I read this scripture to begin as well. But today, I want to focus on what is said in the last verse about the subject of submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. So Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. This is a powerful passage to exhort us about how we approach unto the worship of God and how we conduct ourselves in the church and in how we interact with our brothers and sisters in the Lord. In verse 21, it exhorts us to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. The idea of submission is something that is central to the gospel message itself. And so as we start to expound this, it is helpful for us to look at Ephesians chapter 2, where the Lord Jesus himself is presented before us as the model and example of our own attitude and action of Submission and humility of Philippians chapter two, where Paul is addressing the unity of the church and he's exhorting them to have oneness of mind. And we might uh, consider that very similar to when Paul in, in Ephesians, as we've seen before, exhorts the church to uh, the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And here he gives them an example and instructions of how to pursue that unity and that submission to one another. And what I hope we will see is the strength, the power that comes from that for the church when we are obedient to this command. If there be, therefore, any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill ye my joy that ye be like minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, what we will notice as we read on in this passage is that when the Apostle Paul and likewise, when Peter or the other apostles or or uh, any of the pastors uh, of the church, when they were addressing the church, when they were addressing a conflict or a challenge or an issue that the church faced, their answer was to go to the gospel. Their answer was to go to the message of Jesus Christ as the root and the source for the truth and the instruction that was needed to approach that. So that itself is a lesson to us that we uh, address the affairs that we have in the church, the, the goings on, the challenges, the conflicts, the, the issues that we might face 
We must start by going back to the source, that is to Jesus himself. And he does this in the teaching about unity. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. This has always been striking to me because he exhorts them to be like-minded, to be of one mind. And the only way to do that, the only way we can come together in oneness of mind is if we come together towards Christ. The only way we can have the same mind is if we have the mind of Christ. It's not my mind, your mind, my opinions, your opinions. It is the mind of Christ that must unify us. But then he goes on to show how this was uh, not just an attitude of humility. That is important. That is at the heart of it. But it was also the obedience and the uh, submission to God's will and God's word and purpose that embodied that mindset. It says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. The son of God in his eternal and divine nature is it equal with God, the father, God, the Holy Spirit. But he was willing to humble himself and take on flesh and dwell among us. In the beginning, it says, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. All things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. But the word, it says, was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So this was a great act of uh, the, the, the son of God emptying himself of his uh, divine prerogative to abide with the father in that state of glory in order to come down and take on your nature and my nature, human nature. And to feel suffering and weakness and sorrow and pain and temptation and trial and hunger. And ultimately to give himself to die in obedience to the plan and purpose of God to bring about the salvation of his people. But it says, made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So here's how Paul reasons. He points to Jesus As the model and example of humility and submission, he shows how the obedience and submission of Jesus Christ resulted in his exaltation to the place of all glory and honor. And then through that, he exhorts 
you and I to obedience, to obedience to the will and word of God in all that we do, that we would uh, seek and strive to obey the authority of Christ over our lives in submission to God and to one another, ultimately leading to the unity and the strength of the church. And so with that, coming back to his exhortation in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. I think when we think about the idea of submission, uh, we might have all kinds of ideas, sometimes incorrect or misleading ideas in our mind about what submission is. Or maybe we just chafe at the idea of submitting because we have imbued somehow this idea in our culture that we are our, our own ruler, we, are, we, are, we have authority over our own life and our own body, we're to follow our heart, we're to do what we want, we're to seek out what makes us happy, what we find fulfilling. I mean, you've heard all these things, I think. You've heard this philosophy of our day and age. And ultimately, the philosophy is... The, the worldly philosophy opposed to the truth of God ultimately boils down to this. It is teaching that you are your own God, that you are your own God, that you have the right and, and not just the right, but you have the duty that it is the best path for you to decide and determine for yourself and fully embrace and pursue that which, according to your own heart and your own desires, brings you happiness and fulfillment. And that is the worldly idea of truth, and it's contrary to the biblical idea of submission. But what is the biblical idea of submission? The biblical idea of submission, let me make clear, is not... An attitude of weakness, but it is in fact a source of strength for the people of God. It is not an attitude or a behavior whereby you submit yourselves to everyone else and to everyone else's whims and desires. That's, in, that's really no better than just pursuing your own desires. That submission, it says, must be in the fear of God. So that is, you don't just submit uh, out of an attitude of weakness and humility towards whatever the world tells you to do or whatever uh, anyone you meet tells you to do, but the submission must be in the fear of God. Sometimes that might bring you in conflict with the powers of this world. In fact, quite frequently it will. I think about the early disciples. They submitted themselves to the word of God in obedience to their Lord Jesus Christ. They understood who their master was. And that's where they drew their strength and their courage. And so they went out proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ. And they did mighty works by the power of the Holy Spirit in them. And then they were opposed. They were opposed by the powers of this world. And they were arrested. And they were hauled before the tribunals and they were questioned and they were tried and they were beaten and they were told, don't preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And so what did they do? What did their submission to Jesus Christ lead? Did it lead to weakness 
No, it led them to great strength and courage in the face of this. And they said, we must obey God rather than man. They had to obey someone. And so do we. We must have something be the guiding rule of our lives. And so we are exhorted to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. Let me give you another illustration that I think demonstrates this and can be a, um, a vivid picture to us that we can apply to the church and how we relate and submit to one another. So, so often, I think, when people think about submission, they think that that's a state and a posture of weakness, of powerlessness, because uh, submission is viewed as you are uh, giving up your power and your strength uh, to, to someone else to have that authority and that power over you. But let me, let me give you an illustration. Imagine, and when I, when I imagine this, I'm, I'm kind of picturing in my mind back in, in Roman times and the times of, of the apostles, but, I, but I'm imagining in my mind two military units, perhaps led by two centurions. And, and the first one, uh, the first one, uh, we'll say, led by Cornelius, he's got his, he's a centurion, he's got his hundred soldiers. And those hundred soldiers and their training and their operations, they're running like a well-oiled machine. Uh, they show up every morning, uh, bright and early, for, for training, and they're out there training, and they have come to training prepared and on time, ready for the work that's set before them. They all have their weapons, and their weapons, they make sure before they arrive, are sharp, they're ready to go. They've taken the time and the attention to them the night before, so that when they arrived, ready to train, everything was as it should be. And then when they come, they come together and they have a spirit amongst them in that unit of those hundred soldiers that each one looks out for the good of the other. So that when they go out into battle, that they're protecting one another's lives, that they're defending one another, that they are uh, looking not just to save their own skin, but they're looking out for the good of everyone else in their unit so that they're an effective fighting force protecting and helping one another. When they show up for training, Cornelius calls them to attention and they're all standing, ready, in a line, uh, orderly, established, uh, ready to listen to his every command. And when he says, go right, they turn and they go right at an instant's notice. When he says, go left, they go left. They, they, they're prepared, they're orderly, they're considering one another, and they are listening to the commands of their general and being led by them. And so when they go out to a, to, into battle, you can imagine how effective and how strong and how fearsome a fighting force that would be. All right, now, now imagine the other unit. We have another centurion. Tiberius, and he's got his hundred soldiers. But the whole attitude and mindset and philosophy of that unit is totally different. In Tiberius's unit, the attitude is follow your heart. 
do what you want. And so they, uh, they start their training, but they don't really get started uh, until a little later in the day. And the people, the, the soldiers, trickle in uh, at their own whim uh, when they want to arrive, uh, what, what pleases them. Uh, their weapons aren't sharp. In fact, some of them don't even have the same weapon. Uh, their attitude is just, use whatever weapon you like. Uh, what, what do you prefer? So some of them have swords, and some of them have sticks, and some of them have uh, rocks that they can throw. Uh, but they're not really organized. They're not really concerned for one another. When, uh, when Tiberius gives his commands uh, to go left, when they're training, uh, half of the soldiers stumble over each other because they're really not ready. They're not organized. And when they're in battle, worst of all, when they're in the battle, when they're in the fray, they're not looking out for each other. They're not prepared. They're not organized. They're not ready. And so rather than being effective and strong, their weakness and their frailty cause them to fall apart in the face of the most small difficulty that might oppose them. Well, I hope that through this illustration you could see that the understanding of authority and submission to one another is something that leads to strength. And if it leads to strength in this military example, then we can also see that in the church and how we treat one another and how we submit to one another, how we submit to the leadership of the church and ultimately all flowing from the authority and the word of Christ, how that will be our strength and it will hold us together, especially in the day that we face difficulty. Authority was something that was always understood to be very critical and important to the kingdom of God. There was once a, um, a, a Roman uh, centurion, I believe, who came to Jesus and he desired Jesus to heal his servant. He had heard of the great fame of Jesus and the great power of Jesus working these mighty miracles. And he comes and he comes to Jesus and he says, it, it, well, he, he sends his servants to Jesus and he says, he says, heal my, can you, would you please heal my servant? And Jesus says, I will come and I will heal the servant. And the centurion says, he says, no, you don't, you don't even need to come into my house. I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. He says, I'm a man under authority and in authority. He understood what it meant to have authority and be under authority. He understood that when his master, the general over him, said, you go and you take your unit out and you, and you uh, lay siege to this city over here, that he listened to the command, he obeyed the command, and he took action on it. And he also understood that when he told his soldiers, go, they went. When he said stand, they stood. When he said fight, they fought. When he said turn, they turned. He understood what it meant to exercise authority and to be under authority. And he says, Jesus, you don't even need to come to my house. You just say the word. He knew Jesus had authority over what? Over the disease, over angels. He had authority to command this to be done. And Jesus says, I have not seen so great faith. No, not in Israel. 
And so when we consider submission, we're, we're seeing that in this idea of submitting to one another, there are several different facets of this. First, there's this idea and understanding of authority. When we submit to one another, what authority are we submitting to? We're submitting to the authority of the church, of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is exercising the church's authority on the ba- is exercising the authority of Jesus on his behalf. And this is what Jesus has entrusted his people with. Uh, we see that there's a concept of humility, that in order to submit, there must be humility. We must understand that there is uh, authority greater than ourselves that we are submitting to. You are not your own God. You are not ultimately in charge of your own life. But you are uh, the possession of another. Uh, it's, and, and, then, and then we see that there's also the idea of commitment. There's a commitment to one another. When we submit to one another, we do so with a mindset of commitment. And this leads to strength, to unity, and holiness that is pleasing to God. And we're submitting, as it says, to one another in the fear of God. Um, In Hebrews chapter 13, it speaks about how this involves submission to the overseers of the church. In particular, this is speaking about submission to the pastor or pastors of the church. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief for that is unprofitable for you. Now I I'm emphasizing this point as as much as I can. Because I do believe that we live, especially in an age, though I don't know that this is unique to our age, but it seems to be so prevalent in our age, that there is such a mindset among even those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. There's such a mindset of a self-determination that uh, where I go to church, when I go to church, uh, is a matter of personal preference. It's a matter of our own internal desires, that the idea that we would submit ourselves, that we would obey the authority of those that God has placed in positions of leadership and authority over us is is in some ways so foreign to people in our culture. And the result, what is the result of that? The result is that so many churches are weak and ineffective and not unified. Because they're not in submission to one another. They're not in submission to the church. They're not in submission to the, uh, the, the godly leadership of pastors. And the result is they're weak and ineffective and not pleasing to God. And so inclined to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And not live their lives in accordance with that obedience to God. So obey, it says, obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves for they watch for your souls. Now this rule, this rule that 
that the shepherds of the church have is that of a shepherd. It's to guide. It's to instruct. And we are encouraged in the fear of God to submit to it. For it says, for they watch for your souls. They watch for your souls and they give account. They, they come before God. They lift you up in prayer. They pray for the needs and the, the goings on that are happening in the church. And it ought to be your desire that when your pastor is thinking about you, thinking about your life and your service in the church and praying to God for you, that he would be doing so with joy and not with sorrow. Consider that. Think about that. Take that thought with you and meditate on that. The way you're living your life, the way you speak to others in church, the way you live your life outside of church each day of the week, the report that's, that, that is, is ahead of you, your reputation. When your pastor or your brothers and sisters in the church are coming before God and they're praying for you, are they doing that with joy or with sorrow? Is, are you giving them reason to, uh, to be filled with sorrow? Or are you giving them great reason to give thanks and to praise God for your faith and your service to him? That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is, an, um, is unprofitable for you. I... The, the, the example I gave, the illustration I gave, I hope demonstrates the commitment that that military unit had, that effective fighting force that was fearsome, that was uh, a force you wouldn't want to go up against in battle. They had a commitment to each other. They had a commitment to their unit. And I hope that could be an example to us of what we ought to have in the church. That to submit to one another is to be committed to one another, is to have a, a commitment that lives itself out in action for one another. Because you are not your own, you are bought with a price. Uh, that, that comes from uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You are not your own, you are bought with a price. And, and in that passage in particular, it's about the importance of sexual morality which is a big issue of course in our in our culture and our culture's mindset and attitude is that you ought to do what makes you happy that you ought to pursue what you find fulfilling and the message of the bible is you are not your own you are bought with a price therefore glorify god in your body and in your spirit which are god's what is that price that he's talking about? That price is the blood of Christ, the life of Christ given for us on the tree to purchase us to God. And so we don't belong to ourselves. Our bodies are not our own to do with what we please, but they belong to God. They belong to our Lord Jesus Christ. Our bodies, our souls, our spirits, our whole person belongs to him and not to ourselves. And so uh, we ought to be committed to living in accordance with his word for our lives and commit to, our, to one another in that respect.
So what, what are some practical things that we can commit to one another and commit to for ourselves in order to strengthen and build up the church? Well, we can commit to uh, the most basic thing, to being present at the worship. We can commit to abiding by the biblical moral standards of how we ought to live and to conduct our lives and that are expected by one another. We could commit to holding one another to those standards. That's, that's where it gets difficult. That's where it gets hard. Um, we can commit to praying for one another and to praying for our pastor. We can commit to submitting to and upholding church discipline. Matthew chapter 18 speaks about the important responsibility that the church has to exercise the authority of Christ in the earth. See, this is this is not just the this is not just about the whims of the people or the preferences of the people. It's about exercising the authority of Christ on his behalf in the earth as he has charged us to do. And so when we do so, it must be in line with him. So here here's an example. This is a particular type of exercise of of church discipline that's exemplified. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Now, this demonstrates to us specific things, but maybe it's helpful to to, uh, fill in a specific example that might happen. Uh, Let's say let's say uh, two people in the church were involved in a business transaction with each other. And in the course of that, one of them uh, deceptively did something where he defrauded his brother uh, and, and violated the terms of the contract in order to defraud his brother out of a great significant sum of money. And this happened in the church. Well, here we're given, this is something that happened between the two of them. It wasn't necessarily known to the whole church to begin with. And so Jesus teaches them how to deal with this situation. He says, first, the offended brother goes to his brother and he tells him the fault. He says, this is what you've done to me. This was wrong. It's contrary to God's word. Please uh, repent and, and make restitution for this wrong that you've done. And if if the brother hears him and repents and that relationship is restored and the wrong is righted, then it need go no further. That can be handled in the smallest way possible. It doesn't even become a big thing. Um, but it says, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Now this, now it, it escalates when there's no repentance, the, the issue escalates and it escalates out of necessity because this is something that isn't able to be resolved between just the two of them. And it could turn out that maybe the one who thought he was offended was actually wrong. This happens to us all the time. 
we think that we were wronged, but when uh, it, it, so an objective observer is able to uh, evaluate the situation, they recognize that, no, in fact, you were offended by this, you were troubled by this, but you, you were not wronged in this situation. Or maybe they were wronged, and this is assuming that he was wronged. Um, and even with bringing two or three witnesses, the offender would not hear. And so he says, and if ye shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. Now, what does it mean to hear them? To hear that is not just, oh, I hear, I hear what you're saying, and, and that's it. To hear, in the biblical sense, to hear means to hear that word, to be uh, convinced by it of the wrongdoing of the sin, and then to repent of that sin, which is not just to feel bad about it, but to stop doing it, and as much as it is possible at that point, to make restitution for it. That's what repentance is. Repentance isn't just feeling bad that you sinned. It's to stop sinning and to make it right in as much as you can. And, but if he refuses to hear you, it says, if he neglect, then tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as a heathen man and a publican. Then notice this. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever you shall loose in earth shall be loosed in heaven. Here he's saying that when the church acts in accordance with God's word, in the fear of God, that what they do on earth, God validates that in heaven. God stands by the godly and obedient actions of his church. So when it gets to that extreme situation where an unrepentant member of that church, uh, unwilling to turn from his sin and make proper restitution, refuses to repent in the face of the judgment of the church, the church is to cast him out of the church and treat him as an unbeliever. And God honors and stands by that decision made on earth. And that's really what these next two verses about, though we often quote it in a broader sense about how God is present with his people when they're gathered together. He is. But what this is really talking about is that that Jesus honors the the actions and decisions of his church when they are done in accordance with the fear of God and the word of God. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Jesus is there, present with them as they're making their judgment, as they're making their decisions as a church. Jesus is present with them, honoring that when they are acting in accordance with his will and with his purpose. So what does this mean for us? individually and as a community. It means that we must be willing and committed to submit ourselves to this way of, uh, of acting in the church in commitment to one another. That means that we must commit ourselves to being willing to be subject to the exhortation and the discipline of the church and being willing to participate in that in the right way in accordance with God's word. I want to 
to, to wrap this up with an example from history that I have uh, recently come across and been studying, which is, which is I think, a, a good example to us of what it means to commit together as a church. Churches throughout history have done this in different ways. Sometimes they did so through formal church covenants. Sometimes it was not so formal. But uh, nonetheless, the example I'll, I'll give, I think, demonstrates the principles of commitment to one another. And, and it, comes from, it comes from one of the earliest Baptist churches in, in this country. In fact, it was the first group of Baptists known to be uh, in the state of New Jersey. And this was in a town called Middletown, New Jersey. And these, these brothers and sisters, they came uh, originally from England and from Wales. Uh, but when they settled in New Jersey, they were some of the very first settlers in the state of New Jersey. And they were, they were uh, Baptists. Baptists and Quakers largely were, were the first settlers in this area of New Jersey. And the reason they came there... They came there because they were heavily persecuted in, uh, in other parts of the world, in, in England and in Wales, and then later in New England. They were persecuted, and they sought out places which were hospitable to religious freedom so that they could practice their faith and serve their God uh, relatively unharmed by the authorities and the powers that be. And, th- and, that, and that brought them to... New Jersey in about the 1660s. And this small group, and we're talking starting out maybe 20 to 30 people, not, not a huge amount, but this group would end up being one of the most influential churches which would ultimately have a, uh, an incredible impact in why we even have Baptists in this country today and how they have prospered so much over the generations was because of groups like this. Well, they, they started strong. They, they formed a church. But very early on, within the first generation, they came into a pretty big conflict in their church that almost tore them apart. And uh, they, it, it had gotten so bad, they were disagreeing about, um, about some about signing a confession of faith and one group of the church excommunicated another group and uh, they, were, they were in great conflict and they almost, their, their story as a church in some ways almost ended there and they would have had no impact and no legacy. Um, but they did something that I think was very instructive. They submitted themselves to the judgment of brethren that they trusted and uh, they, they called some of the elders and pastors from other churches in the area to come to advise them about what to do, how they ought to handle their situation, to give them some encouragement and some instruction, which they submitted to. And it included several different things, which I won't go into, but what I do want to Um, share with you was one of the things that they were encouraged to do was to agree and subscribe to a church covenant in which they would agree to certain things. And they did. They would go on to uh, agree to this church covenant. They would sign their names to it and they would commit to live 
by those principles and those those actions. And I have uh, that to read to you, at least part of it. So they in in uh, restoring their church, they agreed to commit to eight things. And here I'm reading to you from a reproduction of the original document from their records as a church in the year 1712. They said, we do solemnly join ourselves together in a holy union and fellowship, humbly submitting to the, dis- to the discipline of the gospel and all holy duties required of a people in such a spiritual relation. One. We do promise and engage to walk in all holiness, godliness, humility, and brotherly love as much as lieth, as much as in us lieth to render our communion delightful to God, comfortable to ourselves, and lovely to the rest of the Lord's people. Two, we do promise to watch over each other's conversations and not to suffer sin upon one another so far as God shall discover it to us or to any of us, and to stir up one another to love and to good works, to warn, rebuke, and admonish one another with meekness according to the rules left to us of Christ in that behalf. Three, we do promise in an especial manner to pray for one another and for the glory and increase of this church and for the presence of God in it and the pouring forth of his spirit on it and his protection over it to his glory. Four, we do promise to bear one another's burdens, to cleave to one another, and to have a fellow feeling with one another in all conditions, both outward and inward, as God in his providence shall cast any of us into. Five, we do promise to bear with one another's weakness, failings, and infirmities, with much tenderness, not discovering to any without the church, nor any within unless according to Christ's rule and the order of the gospel provided in that case. Six, we do promise to strive together for the truths of the gospel and purity of God's ways and ordinances, to avoid causes and causers of division, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Ephesians 4, 3. Seven, We do promise to meet together on Lord's days and at other times as the Lord shall give us opportunities to serve and glorify God in the way of his worship, to edify one another and to contrive the good of his church. Eight, we do promise according to our ability or as God shall bless us with the good things of this world to communicate to our pastor or minister God having ordained that they preach the gospel shall live of the gospel. And now, they conclude, and now can anything lay a greater obligation upon the conscience than this covenant? What then is the sin of such who violate it? These and all other gospel duties we humbly submit unto promising and purposing to perform, not by our own strength, being conscious of our own weakness, but in the power and strength of the blessed God, whose we are and whom we desire to serve, to whom be glory now and forevermore. Amen. And under that, subscribe, you can see their names that they have written and signed, committing to one another, submitting 
to one another in the fear of the Lord. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness and grace to us in sending your precious Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, O God, that he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. For he did so for our redemption, for our salvation, for our deliverance. And God, we recognize and confess unto you the infirmities of our flesh, the weakness of our ways. And we ask, O God, that you would fill us, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Pour out your Spirit upon the Mount Carmel Primitive Baptist Church. That here among us we might love, encourage, exhort, correct, rebuke, and hold accountable, and hold up in prayer, and strive for the good of one another. God, to the end that your name might be glorified through this church, that we might find our strength, uh, not in our own strength, but in our weakness, that the strength of God might be magnified. As we humble ourselves and submit to one another and to our Lord Jesus Christ, may, may the strength of God work mightily in us and through us. God, we thank you for the faithfulness that you have shown to this church throughout its many generations and years of existence, through those that have, uh, through it, found fellowship and family here among the people of God. And we pray, O God, that you might work mightily to strengthen her and to uphold her and to guide her in the years to come for the glory of Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.